Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, this is Alona Thompson with Palate Exposure, and I have a very special guest with me today that I've had the honor and the privilege to get to know a little bit over the years. His name is Wilfred Wong. He's currently, and I love the title, is the chief storyteller at the famed Wine.com. Who doesn't know Wine.com? <laughs> it's, it's a very successful company, of course, but it just it's very succinct. If you like wine, you've got to get to know Wine.com. We're going to get to know him on a personal level a little bit, his life's journey and his storied career. He has a lot of wisdoms to share. He doesn't even realize what a sage he is. He's very modest, very humble, which is one of the qualities that I really adore about him. Welcome, Wilfred. Hey, I'm glad to be here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So we'll start in the beginning. I always say, you know, we'll come from childhood. We're born somewhere. There has to be context of some type. So I'll just ask you, where were you born? How did it all begin? (laughs) I was um, was born in uh, San Francisco, Francisco. born and raised. I, I went to the school system here. I uh, went to uh, Low High School, UC Berkeley, City College. So I'm, and I, I was raised in Haight Ashbury. Wow. Um, and I all the action. <laughs> so I saw all the action, kind of. Uh, uh, my mom was a fantastic cook, uh, and my younger brother is a, is a well-known chef. Wow. I see. I didn't know that. I sort of refer to my wine world sometimes, particularly the trade world, as like four weddings and a funeral movie. You know, it, you, we run into each other and we get the snippets of each other's lives and backgrounds, but and we taste together and it gets so intense at times because we're nerds, right? We're wine nerds. But then you may have run into a person like I ran into you for, I don't know, decade, maybe 15 years. It's been a oh, while. Yeah. Um, but I didn't even know that you have such an illustrious culinary background, you know, with your family. So tell me more about that. Well, um, there was a store, it's, it's still there, but it's not under our ownership, Ashbury Market. Okay. That's a store that my parents purchased in 1956. And I grew up in the market. So I was a kid, a little kid running around that store. Uh, and and uh, as I went to high school and etc. Then I started uh, managing the business with my mother and father. Uh, they taught me how to be a retailer, how to take care of customers, and 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 try and also learn what resonated with customers. So we had a very very good store. Uh, today uh, I would liken our store to Buy Right as a store or or Gus, very similar in that way. In fact, very similar to Gus on um, um, on Harrison. Because it's very small and tight, and you have to get around, and it's you know cozy. Um, we were um, uh, early on in my career. I decided that uh, I I could taste wines. I mean, the two things that, that I learned as a young adult that I, I could taste wines, and then I learned from very good people as well how to hone that, and I could also write. So I had two traits that I had, and I learned the retail trade from my parents. So I added them together, then I developed my career. And then somewhere when I was in my late 30s, I decided 
that my own family business was not going to take care of me for my long-term goals. I needed to go beyond the family business. While my parents took great care of me and my siblings were good to me as well, I needed to be, my career was not going to end our family business. So I thought I needed to go to a larger company that could fly me to France every year so I could learn, increase my study. And that happened um, in, um, uh, in, in 2000, I'm sorry, um, in 1995, I joined Bevmo. And um, then it was called Beverage and More. And it was a great job. Uh, my job, uh, it moved around a little bit because Bevmo at that time was still a struggling store uh, and company. I joined them when they had six stores and I worked there almost 19 years. Um, uh, for the last um, 10 to 12 years, um, I was, um, uh, my title was uh, a, a seller master. It's, and I worked between the merchandising department and marketing, just as I do at, at wine.com. That's absolutely fascinating. I would add the third trait to what you described, you know, very astute palate, great teaser, and certainly a great writer, that you're a great people person. You're really a humanitarian. I mean, those early beginnings that you reference, with you being in the store, in the retail environment, customer-centric, <clears throat> that really translated. If you guys ever see Wilfred and his natural environment and the wine tasting, surrounded by colleagues, you galvanize people around you. You always have a smile on your face. People always love you. There's just so much goodwill that's coming out of you, like, you know, contextually, organically, it's undeniable. And I've always been fascinated by that. And now it's making a bit more sense to me because you grew up really serving people in some way, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. You hit it right on the, on the point. Good, good. So I've, I'm so excited right now, you guys, because I've always admired your knowledge, your humility, um, your people skills and such like that. But it's always great to learn like what really facilitated that, how, how Wilfred became who he is, because he's really symbolic in the industry, in my view, to someone that has profound depth of knowledge and industry experience but he never takes himself seriously. He never, like I said, that humility piece has always impressed me to no end. Um, so let's talk about the years of BevMo because my God, you wrote exhaustive notes. I cannot even imagine how many wines in any given week you were tasting. I just saw the shelf talkers. I'm like, this guy can't possibly sleep. Well, during the BevMo days at the height, I was almost, I was at about 10,000 wines a year. Oh my goodness. Um, because there's so much wine to taste in looking for the value wine and the quality wine. And we're also involved in, the, uh, in a private label program that actually comprised uh, several countries, uh, USA, of course, uh, but the Argentina, Chile, and uh, France, Italy as well. So we would, um, I, I logged in more miles than almost anybody in the company because I would be out of the country at least five times a year. Uh, twice in France, uh, sometimes twice in, in South America as well. Uh, and I, like, like working with, with the winemakers of companies to produce a wine for Bethmo. Hmm. So uh, uh, part of it, and then there was a lot of private label, not private label, but there were a lot of what we call the control labels that were offered to us to look at. So I had to taste through all that stuff. And let me tell you, that was a lot of work. 
because some of the wines are terrible and some are really good. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very glamorous, you know, flying around the world, tasting all these wines, but it is real work. Uh, and there's so many components to it because you're tasked with an awesome responsibility. It's a business and you have yeah. to come up with a winning formula, you know, in what you're tasting that's a good fit for your business. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, the formula, you know, it's tasting wines and understanding what they mean and what they're about and how to put them right in the right context. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much, it's tricky. It's not rocket science. I mean, anybody can, most anybody can do this, I think. Just have to be able to be disciplined and, and have a um, idea of what it takes to get to that point. Um, what I do is not particularly diff. Uh, hard to understand it's just a lot of work to get there yes simple but not simplistic um so let's just get a practical example so our listeners could kind of get into your head a little bit okay you go to chile and you're tasting through i have to assume hundreds of wines right and you're right. picking right. a certain number right you have some open to buy so to speak right some number of wines you can Include in the portfolio. What do you look for? And well, okay, we look for say say I I there is a price point that that my buyers then decided that we want to hit this price point. Okay, right. so say a Chardonnay at ten dollars mm -hmm. for for example. Mm -hmm. So then I have to understand. I mean, what I bring to the table is what does a Chardonnay at ten dollar taste like whether it's from Chile, uh, Central Valley, Central Coast, um, um, anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the essence of a, of a, of a $10 Chardonnay? Okay, uh, a lot of them are very commercial. A lot of them are sweet. A lot of them have uh, oak chips. There's all these uh, different things. Uh, a lot of them are targeted for a specific marketplace, mm -hmm. whether it's USA or East Coast or, or just uh, or a large format uh, retailer. Uh, so, and what I found that in the Chardonnay from Chile that I tasted in, in uh, while at Bevmo for the, our private label program, they would have like low acid, too much sugar, and would be oxidized somewhat. It would be away from what I wanted. And I think that part of the of the of the learning that we accomplished at that point was that. Those guys think, hey, you know, we drink oxidized wines. I mean, we drink wines. This is what we drink. This is what we sell to our to our neighboring countries. So this is good. And I say, no, it's not so good. I don't like this, and I'm not interested in this wine. And uh, it, and my company backed me, you know, in my opinion. So that say, look, can you give us? So they would have to pull different lots. So we would have like twenty to thirty. Uh, Say, say of a, a Chardonnay example on the table to look at. I'll say, well, these three, four, five look like the kind of style we're looking for. So, so we would like a higher acid. We would like to have sustained steel, fresh fruit, uh, bright. And this actually goes against what most uh, large retailers would do because most retailers uh, in a large format, and I know this for a fact, they just say, give us the price and just give it to us and then we'll sell it. Because what they do is that they're gonna give a wine that's gonna be 
a loan asset, um, got some sugar um, and some oak chips because that's what does sell and that does sell. And you can't deny the numbers okay. But um, at Belmont in those days, what I did was say, look, I want higher asset, I want fresher wine, and this is the kind we want. And I would then give a projected rating on the wine that I would give it. And then, of course, it would not be the final reading because that would be given upon the uh, when the wine was already bottled and labeled. Um, so, so many times I've tasted the trial taste would be um, in Santiago, and then then they would be sent to Concord, California. Uh, you know, the next blend uh, based upon what I told them I, that I would like, and then. Um, uh, uh, and then when I would sign off on it, or I would sign, or I would not sign off on it, depending on how it tastes. And then sometimes they would have to redo it again and send another batch of samples from New Chile. Wow. So this is kind of a fascinating picture that emerges. So what you're describing is that a lot of retailers just, you know, they had one value, valuation really. Uh, they put everything in the price point basket. But right, you actually right very early on started identifying the integrity of the wine and a lot of values that you've mentioned, such as acidity uh, and certain level of elegance and ballast, I, I would submit. Um, those are the values that are very heavily propagated today, particularly by the Samaria community and critics and such. Right, like. right. You were kind of a pioneer in that, weren't you? Well, it was, uh, it was kind well, um, uh, Bevmo backed me 100%. They they never uh, uh, coerce me or push me. They let me do what I do. Um, so say I tried a wine that I thought would be the right style and, and turn down the ones that I thought weren't, and I would taste I would taste like six Chardonnays. Let's say this Chardonnay has these flaws in the style I'm looking for. I would say it would be scoring between uh, 84 to 87 points. Okay. Okay, these wines are much better. This is what I'm looking for, and then and we would go up to a, a, a so this is what I'd score, and then uh, and then when a product came to USA, uh, I finally signed off on it. Sometimes it was difficult; it took time. Sometimes it was quicker, depending. And then and the bevel would market it, and I would give my score on the wine, and it sold. We didn't have any problems with those wines. Uh, I mean, it sold really well, and it made a lot of money for for my old company. Of course, and I'm absolutely fascinated by your palate because you're self-taught, right? You didn't necessarily take formal classes or went to. Uh, 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 I'm self-taught. I mean, I did get a lot of. In the early days, um, I spent a lot of time with uh, with some members of the media, famous writers who some were along with us. Uh, and, and and then I also I also learn a lot when I, I when I judge wines. Yes. For a time, I judge wines more than anyone else in the country, and and it was a push. But I did that, and that actually taught me how to taste wines even better. I mean, it's a very critical part of, of my learning process. It is so important. I mean, I've talked to numerous individuals that have several degrees and sometimes masters, and almost uniformly, everyone has told me that they learned on the job, they learned from the environment, they learned by osmosis, they learned from their peers so much more. I mean, the collegial part, you know, of course, is important, but 
it really isn't the practical knowledge that you wind up implementing and working with. So as value proposition, I think what you learn in the field is so much more than you could ever learn from a textbook. Um, you, of course, you just mentioned that you've judged more than anybody. Wow, having judged a little myself, it is quite an intense process. It's exhilarating because you're in a group of peers, but also there's such incredible variance um, between the flights and the wines within the flights. Sure. Um, not dissimilar, it's like a microcosm of what you experience at large, right? When you right. were planted with this massive. How did you catalog in your own mind? Um, like, how do you calibrate and codify all the bits and pieces, data points that are coming in? Um, that, you know, I cannot get enough of that. Like, how does it work in your mind? Well, when you get a wine that tastes, I mean, if I get a wine totally blind and someone says, what's this? Yeah. Like, with no clues, except yeah. for the color, unless it's put in a, in a blue glass. Okay. okay, that's always fun. So then, <laughs> so then you just take yourself, okay, this is a red wine, it's fruity, it's simple, uh, it's pretty dark, it's probably Cabernet or Zen, you're still doing that kind of stuff. But those are kind of things that you say, this is a good wine, it's balanced, it's not sweet, and it has whatever, so then you give it kind of thing, like a, a grade. Um, when, you, uh, when you get a wine, uh, I mean, I taste a lot of wines blind, and, and I taste a lot of wines not blind. Um, but like, like for instance, if it came as Cabernet, I think every came as Cabernet since 1972, okay? Wow. Uh, and, and all the special selections too, that 40 years of Camus. Uh, so it, it takes me 10 seconds to understand what the new Camus is about. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take me more than 10 seconds. Yeah. Because I know, because it's the same vineyard source basically, it's the same, it's basically the same winemaking. So, yeah. So all I'm looking at is for deltas. When I go to the Bordeaux tastings, uh, um, um, you know, every year the Bordeaux tastings in, in, in the city, uh, and I'm tasting like Lynch Bars or something. Well, I've got Lynch Bars, like, like 30 minutes of the Lynch Bars. So I kind of know what I'm looking for. It's a, it's a Poyak, it's classified, uh, and this is what I expect from it. Then I'm looking for, for the density and the character uh, and, and then, and then the other nuances are like the tannin uh, uh, balance, and there's any botanomyces. So you have a few other things you look for, but but the basic character, you know, every one of the chateaus I've had like like uh, over over 36, 40 vintages of. Wow, I hope these folks are listening, particularly the Wagner family. I think there should be like some sort of honorary plaque in their winery for your dedication. That's amazing. Um, and it's also fascinating that they really haven't changed the style. A lot of wineries, particularly in well, that. Well, actually, style. they have changed the style. The have, style has changed. Oh, yes. I used to taste a lot of it. I freely admit I haven't had Camus in a while. I mean, Camus Cabernet. I mean, Camus is a is a it's an incredible story. Uh, and and I knew Charlie uh, uh, when he was alive, uh, of course, and um, Chuck and everybody, uh, and. Uh, and the siblings and everything. And basically, uh, uh, the Camus Cabernet was much was more balanced, and but it was representative of the of, of that era. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1972 and three, those wines are going to be 13.5 alcohol, I mean 12.5 alcohol, and, and and more acid and fresher. Uh, 
today the wines are going to be 14-ish to 15 in general, uh, and probably threshold sugar a little over that. And just in general, not just Caymans, but other Napa Valley properties, because that's the style that's currently in, in vogue. Yeah. You've watched, you know, the trajectory um, of, you know, particularly New World wine, and specifically California wine, very closely for the last, you know, 20 some odd years, right? So what have you noticed? Like, what have you observed? The pendulum tends to swing one direction or the other every so often. Um, just historically, you know, people kind of go towards one direction and then it's braced by the critic could become self-fulfilling prophecy. And then all of a sudden they realize that may not be the correct direction. Well, yeah, what, what were your observations? Sorry. There are a lot of styles out there that are legitimate. Mm -hmm. When you look at a small producer that's more in the, uh, for lack of a better word, geeky world, mm -hmm. they're going to look for lower alcohol, higher acid, fresher wines, shortage uh, with uh, normal lactic, stuff like that. Uh, it's not a wine that's a style that's totally popular with a large population, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's one that people like sommeliers uh, and, and the media, uh, like and praise and uh, etc. And then you take a wine that's got sugar, like some red wine's got sugar, uh, and that's but that, that's very popular wine too. Um, it's a wine that I don't choose personally to drink, but I what I have to do is recognize what is the winery trying to make, and did they succeed in making it in the style they tried to make, and then and then yes, is it legitimate? Uh, so. Um, the thing is that you have to take yourself out of the equation of your personal um, likes and dislikes. Uh, you have to say, okay, um, I will give this wine this rating because it is successful in the style. Um, and then, but like where I can depart from, from my score that I give it is when I write about the wine, if I whack, if I whack swelly about a wine, say like, I'm a big fan of spots with Cabernet, okay? Because I just love the story. I've been buying, I've been tasting every wine that they ever made. I mean, not ever made, but in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So I started with 82. I just had the 16 vintage. So I've got a lot of vintages of wow. Spotswood. Uh, but, I, but I also understand the, the wine, uh, how it's made, um, the vineyards, how they grow the, the, uh, the grapes. All this kind of stuff that you got to take in um, in the science of it. So, like, I have no problem talking to winemakers and say, you know, I don't really like your style of wine, but I do think it's really well made. I tell them that. They don't like when I say that to them, but I don't go in print and say that. I just tell them personally. I said, this wine is too heavy for me or too much barrel for me. So, like, for years, I, I told ZD that they use too much American oak for me, but I think the wine's pretty good. Do you find some of the regions in California particularly exciting and evolving? You know, we know Napa, you know, has that has the credentials, put it this way, and Sonoma, of course, as well. Paso has been gaining in popularity. Um, there's a lot of buzz about Lake County. Um, yeah. So well, anything on your radar? Well, a lot of the new AVAs, I mean, uh, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, Sierra Foothills, uh, Mendocino Ridge, there are, there are Sonoma Coast, 
Um, in the town of Santa Barbara, there, there is a lot of stuff going on Central Coast. There, there is a, a breakup of the Paso area, the west side, east side. Um, what I think is the place where quality starts to rise is when you have a, a smaller producer uh, is going to go out, out on a limb. It doesn't mean that every year they make a wine is successful because they could, could fall on a face too as well. Anybody could fall on their face to some degree, but um, they will pick earlier. They will, they will they'll have a higher risk for a greater reward kind of mentality. When you have like a, like a larger winery, they're going to be safer and probably more predictably good in a good way. Uh, today, also winemaking has progressed so much than when I first started tasting is that there's no excuse for, for winery not to be able to make the style that they intend to make. It's only if it's a style that resonates or not, that depends upon, uh, upon how well they market their wines. Yes. Oh, are we drinking better every year? Better every year. I don't know about that. It's always a very, uh, that's a very interesting question that I think is hard to answer because people say, yeah, we drink less but better. Um, I don't know. I'm mean, that is always the kind of question I just kind of dodge because I don't know if, it's, if, it, if it really is a reality. You know, you frame a wine, if you're making some great food that you really want to, to highlight, uh, then and you put a wine in that context that's going to work really well, and, and you're and you work at it. I mean, you don't just yeah. throw it together. Uh, you can probably um, get a lot of people liking it who are not wine drinkers because you frame it correctly. Indeed. No, I I agree with you. I, I just tend to think that with a bit of cultural improvements and winemaking, as you pointed out. And technology and various other resources that are becoming available in one more of a year um, that I guess almost by default that you said so succinctly a few moments ago there's no excuse to make you know the wine that you're not intentional about whatever your intent is and then I guess yeah. the fringe benefit for the consumer that if you actually do a good job then we should be drinking better. Yeah yeah it's, it's like so you have so as a as a taster and a critic, I have to, I always have to keep on top of recognizing the different styles that are out there per category. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, that's why um, I've always said that if you want to be a serious taster of wine, you have to taste at least 3,000 wines a year minimum. Mm -hmm. And, and if you're, but you also have to be very, very good about picking the right 3,000 wines to taste. <laughs> and that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. And not everybody has that. And I have, I have great access to wine, probably yeah. better than most people. That uh, that is the um, that helps me a, a great deal. Yeah. Uh, for you know, for instance, like uh, in the classic world, you taste if you want to study Cabernet, you have to taste the major Cabernet regions of in California, of uh, Washington State, and Bordeaux, um, uh, Tuscany. There are certain places where these wines are the same grape, different parts of the world. You have to know those wines. And if you, if you add up how many you have to taste in order to get a good uh, understanding of the category, um, it'll add up very fast. If you Pinot Noir, you have 
you have Willamette Valley, you have all the different ABAs in California and new ones, uh, and of course you have Burgundy. Uh, so you, you have to see, you have to understand that area. You look in, so every, every category has a minimum amount of wines required to understand. It's so fascinating. So let's talk about Napa for a second in a particular context. So Napa is almost synonymous in a lot of people's minds with Cabernet. Less accentuating. Yes. I know it's an economic reality because of the cost of land. Do you believe that Cabernet is the best fit for Napa Valley from what you tasted over the years? Um, economically, yes. Uh, <laughs> the as far as quality, there's there are many grapes that can do well there, and with the climate changing, uh, uh, I mean, we now have Coonsville, which is a cool area traditionally producing good Cabernets. Uh, Calistoga is probably getting hotter than ever did in the past. Um, so things will change. Um, but I've had like great Zins, I've had some uh, Charbonneau, I've had many other wonderful grapes from Napa Valley over the years uh, that, are, that aren't on the radar screen of most people. Uh, so the Cabernet is the cash cow. Yeah. It makes money for, for all the growers and all the wineries. Uh, if you like, I mean, it's like in the early, in the 70s, Chenin Blanc was quite attractive in Napa Valley. So how much, how much can you charge for a Chenin Blanc? You know, mm -hmm. if, you can, if you can go to Cabernet in the same, of course, not quite, but maybe same area, that's more cash there. It makes a lot of sense. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.